Welcome to the Global Hearted Podcast, where your heart for people around the world can deepen, and where you can be empowered to better reflect Jesus and His heart for all to know Him. I'm Jason Paulson, here with Anthony Taylor for today's discussion. Anthony, last week we talked about principles to shape our engagement in uh, with frontier people, and you had three principles um, about cultural distance, uh, the meaning that is intended, and using original forms. Um, this week, our discussion is more about uh, the beliefs and practices that the frontier peoples have and uh, what we know about them and what our expectations are. So when you say, don't assume you know what they believe, I don't want to assume I know what you mean by saying that. So can you expand on that some more? Jason, it's, it's a good question. And we're really trying to find out, you know, what do Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus really believe? You know, we, we think we know it. And so if I was a person, you know, that didn't know, I just have discovered, oh, there are Muslims out there. There are Buddhists. And I want to find out how you know, what do Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus believe? You know, the standard answer for a long time would be to direct me to their holy books. You know, just go read. If you, if you want to know about Islam, go read the Quran. And it seems to make sense. You know, if someone wanted to know what Christians believe, we would ask them to read the Bible, wouldn't we? I mean, it's just kind of, it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, what do Christians believe? Oh, here, read this. And, but what we forget is that even though we have one Bible, we have many different interpretations of our one Bible. I mean, look at all the groups that comprise what we call Christians. We have the traditional big tent categories of Catholics and Protestants. But then if you're to dive down in that Protestant category, we have Anglicans, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Mennonites, Pentecostals, and so many more. Within each one of these broad Protestant categories, uh, there's incredible diversity. I mean, just the Baptists alone, how many denominations are self-identified as Baptist? And then among Presbyterians, we have the PCA, the PCUSA, EPC, the OPC, and the echo, and the list goes on. You know, here we have all these different groups that identify as Christian. And then beyond that, we have so many more people that identify as Christian. Does everyone in the world who identify as Christian actually believe what the Bible teaches? Aren't there Christians who believe that there's a Bible is just a collection of stories? And those stories are really irrelevant to one's daily life. Well, if we step back a bit, we'd have to admit that there are many. Now, when I point this out to my evangelical friends, the typical response is, well, those people aren't really Christians. The problem is that these people call themselves Christians. And they may even go to church once a week, every week. And then some of those people who don't really believe the Bible is the word of God. It's just a collection of stories. Some of those people are actually pastors of those churches. 
So how do we deal with this inconsistency between what we evangelicals think and what actually happens in our world? You know, the problem is that we, as followers of Jesus, we reserve the right to define how the word Christian is used in our own communities. And so we assert that if a person self-identifies as a Christian and doesn't believe that the Bible is God's word, well, they can't be classified as a real Christian. We have another category for them. We might call them nominal Christians. Or maybe there's other categories, I don't know. But that's, in my world, that's, well, they were, they're just nominal Christians. Now, I think that everyone who stands in the evangelical tradition would agree that a person who doesn't believe that the Bible is God's word is not part of the evangelical tradition. Among those who stand in the evangelical tradition, there are a wide range of beliefs. But within all that diversity, all who would identify as evangelical would agree they would be Bible-centered, they would be Jesus and cross-centered, they would be conversionist, meaning you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus, and they would be missional, meaning their, their faith would be expressed some way in action because it produces a transformed life. Yet the evangelical tradition is only a subset of the broader category of Christian. There are 2.9 billion people in the world who are classified as Christian. And the category, this category of Christian, is defined by how it's used in the world by many people who identify as Christians, not how it's used only in the evangelical tradition. With this being the case, if we acknowledge how the word Christian is actually used in the world by the many, many, many people that identify as Christian, not just in how it's used by us in the evangelical tradition. Um, it, it changes the dynamic there, and it helps us to nuance better and understand even ourselves better. I found this kind of, you know, how do you, I have friends that are that are Muslim, and we're in the United States. And so, you know, they look at me and they're trying to understand Christianity. So can you tell me what is the difference between an Anglican and a Baptist? And, and it all gets very complicated. How do we explain this incredible diversity that exists among Christians to somebody who doesn't really know much about the faith? Even I don't understand all the denominations that are in the U.S. And I, <laughs> you know, it's it's like we have, I, you know, I grew up in the South, so I understand we had Catholics and we had Baptists, but those Baptists, I thought were all Southern Baptists. I didn't realize we had so many different ones. And then I went to Minnesota to study, and then up there, there was this whole Lutheran world. And then I began to realize, oh, there's all these Lutheran denominations. Um, and they're different. And then there's, you know, then there's the E-Free, because the E-Free have their headquarters in Minneapolis. And you've got Covenant, and you got all these others. And, and beyond that, we have the Presbyterian world, and then we have, you know, uh, Church of Christ, which I honestly, once we get down the road of all these denominations, I myself don't even know what they all are. You know, it's just helpful if we step back 
as evangelicals and realize that the world word Christian is used in a different way than we use it and to acknowledge that. And then, you know, that helps us understand when we begin to talk about other faiths, you know, there's that same diversity there too. So there are 1.9 billion people in the world that identify as Muslim. There are 1.1 billion people who identify as Hindu. So the question is, how many versions of Islam and Hinduism are there in the world? And the answer is there's more than anyone can probably count. And so, you know, that means there's just this incredible diversity within, with, within Muslim communities and Hindu communities. So that being said, to understand any world religion, we need to start somewhere. Reading their sacred writings at least can help us get familiar with some of what they actually might believe. It's not that they do believe it, it's that they might believe it. And so let's start with Islam because it's one of the easier world religions to understand because they have one book called the Quran. They also have the Hadith, which are collections of the sayings of the Prophet of Islam. And there are six authorized versions of the Hadith. There's the Sahih Bukhari, the Sahih Muslim, the Sunan Abu Dawood, the Jamia Al-Tirmidhi, the Sunan An-Nasai, the Sunan Ibn Majah. And some would even include the Muwatta ibn Malik as an authorized version of the Hadith. So that makes up. But these are only the authorized versions of the Hadith. There are other versions as well. And so if we just focused on the authorized Hadith, the Sahih Bukhari in my library is nine volumes. The Sahih Muslim is four and the Sunan ibn Majah is five. So we're talking about a lot of material to read and master if we're going to try to understand Islam through its sacred literature. And we don't just have the Quran, the Quran, you know, we have the Hadith. And then in addition, there are four major schools of law in Islam. And so I'm going to stop there for, to keep from overwhelming all of us. My point in this is this, you know, if you look at what I've just listed, there's a lot of material, even for the average Muslim to master. It is something that most don't even try to master. Most Muslims will have little, if any idea of what's in these collections. At best, they will know a select group of individual sayings from all these books because the sayings are used in their communities. That just helps us reframe, okay, well, if I study the Quran, what is actually that going to tell me? Let's think about studying the Quran then. It's only one book and we can try to read that and try to begin to understand what Muslims believe. Yet to understand the Quran, we, we as outsiders need some historical context. You know, we'll ask where did the Quran come from? Who is this prophet Muhammad? And where did he come from? And then you know, we're going to find ourselves reading to know about the history of Islam to get the answers. But what we don't, many people don't realize is when we begin that, the only history about the origins of Islam that we have 
is the history that Muslims themselves have given us. It's their sacred history. Now, sacred histories are typically reconstructed histories. That doesn't mean that the sacred histories are wrong. It just means that the histories are crafted to validate the faith. You know, this happens, I grew up Catholic, and so among Catholics, we have a sacred history about Catholicism, about the Pope, everything, you know, and it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's, it just means that there are things left out and you don't necessarily think about it as, as a Catholic. You just, because we have a sacred history and we over, you know, and we, we know the real history, but, you know, I, they, those live in two separate compartments and a lot of us don't necessarily cohere those two compartments. Anyway, and it's the same with, with Muslims. And because these are sacred histories, scholars, as they approach, you know, the study of Islam, they, they view the sacred history with a bit of skepticism. You know, for example, uh, it's typically assumed across the Muslim world that the prophet of Islam was illiterate. Yet many scholars doubt this. And because the prophet of Islam is said to have been a successful merchant, and it's unlikely that a successful merchant of that time would have been illiterate. And it's also asserted that there's only one Quran, and it is God's spoken word. And yet, <clears throat> there are 14 different readings of the Quran in existence right now. And only seven of these, of the 14, are considered authoritative. And out of the seven, the Egyptian text is the one that's most widely used today. So things are just never as simple as we would like. So let's just step back again and say, well, what do Muslims believe? Can we simplify things so that we can get some idea? Well, if you were to ask a typical Muslim what they believe, they would respond by saying, you know, if you were to say, well, what is Islam? And they would probably say, and for years, this is what I heard, you know, they would say there's five pillars. There's the Shahada, which is the one sentence creed. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. There's the Salat, which are the five times a day ritual prayer. There's Zakat, which is almsgiving. There's Saum, which is the one month of fasting, also known as Ramazan or Ramadan, depending on where you're from. And the Hajj, it's the once in a lifetime pilgrimage to Mecca. And so that's, if you know, you know, on the streets, you ask a typical Muslim where I lived, that would be the answer. Oh, we have five pillars. And that's meant to explain the faith. And it does it in such a nice, simple way. And yet, for people like me, we need more information than just five pillars. And so, since we have to start somewhere, we start with their sacred history and their sacred writings. So if you were to attend a typical seminar on Muslims and Islam, you will be given the history of how Islam began. You'll get an overview of the Quran and maybe the Hadith. You'll be told about the five pillars of Islam and discover that Muslims have four schools of law. And the packaging in that seminar will be nice and neat. And you do get a basic idea of what Muslims might believe. <laughs> the emphasis is on might. And, you know, I, I think these seminars are very helpful. I attended them. 
And they, they, because they provide a necessary framework from which to begin to construct one's understanding of it, Muslims. And yet the mistake many make is they allow that framework to shape their understanding of what Muslims believe. And so then we begin to treat Muslims and treat them just like we would through our evangelical lens. So if they don't really believe certain things, they're not really either good Muslims or they're not real Muslims. But when you get to know Muslims, you find out that there are some that are, you know, literalists in their interpretation of the Quran and the Hadith. They're kind of like the equivalent to evangelicals, and they would be the Wahhabis. They're an example of this. The Salafis might be another. Out of this group of literalists, you know, like Wahhabis, some of those literalists become radical extremists. You know, these comprise groups like, you know, the Islamic State of, you know, in the Middle East, or in Iraq, and the Islamic State in Afghanistan. Now, <clears throat> some people are deeply conservative, but they don't like the literalist interpretations, and they do all they can to protect their children from the extremists. You know, because the extremists are only a small percentage of any of these groups, you know, in any of we. But, you know, then there are mystics that want to experience God. And so they, their pursuit is encountering God in, in different ways. And then there's many that are just agnostic about matters of faith. They're Muslim because they're Muslim. And some don't even like to think and talk about matters of faith. And then there are some that are atheists. They don't believe in God. They, don't, they think the Quran is just a series of stories. And so what we find difficult to understand because we sit in the evangelical tradition is that all of the above, all that I just mentioned, from the extreme literalist to the atheist, they're all Muslim. And we find that difficult to understand because we define the parameters of our faith by what's written in our Bible. And on top of that, we spend a great deal of energy debating which interpretation of our book is right. We even separate from one another and form groups around our differing interpretations. And when these groups get large enough, we form denominations. And we define ourselves not only by our allegiance to Jesus, but by our allegiance to our particular interpretation of the Bible. In contrast, for most Muslims, being part of one's community is much more important than the content of what any community member believes. So let me give an example. One day I visited, I visited a village not far from the city in which I lived. And my friend took me there and he took me into the communal hall where the men hung out. I was introduced to about 20 men and they're mostly in their 20s. There is a couple in their 40s, maybe a few in their 50s. My friend pointed out one man in particular, and let's call him Abdullah. And he said, Abdullah is an atheist, and he doesn't even believe there is a God. And everyone in the room stopped and they laughed about it. And Abdullah proudly agreed. And immediately 
everybody went back to their conversations. What many of us are slow to understand as evangelicals is that even though Abdullah was an acknowledged atheist, he considered himself and was considered by everybody else in that room a Muslim. If the question is, what does a person have to believe to be a Muslim? The answer is nothing in particular. The better question is, what does a person have to be to be a Muslim? And for many, it's to be born and raised in a Muslim community. And this is because the term Muslim for many is a community construct. It's not you know, a belief construct. The reality is this is true for many, if not most people in the other world religions, just like you know, Catholicism. I mean, what does a person have to believe? I grew up Catholic. So what does a person have to be believe to be a Catholic? Nothing really. You just, you're born Catholic. <laughs> you're born and raised Catholic. You're part of Catholic family. You're part, you understand all the traditions, the cultures of that. And <clears throat> so it's not anything that you need to believe. It's just, it's a community construct. So people typically are members of a community of people who know them and are there for them. And the community may be very diverse in the ways they think and believe but everybody knows who belongs. Thinking about that, thinking about some of what I just said, I sometimes wonder what happened to us in the evangelical tradition. Jesus prayed in John 17 that those of us in Christ would be one. And yet it seems like our commitment to our understandings of truth has has led us to put greater emphasis on our particular interpretations of scripture rather than on our being one in Christ. Maybe we have something to learn from these Muslim communities. So then, how should we proceed if we want to represent Jesus well among Muslims? Well, with regard to Islam and Muslims, you know, it is good for us to be aware of the sacred history and the sacred text of Islam, the five pillars, and some of the different sects in Islam. But that's not enough. We also need to realize that each and every Muslim is an individual with many different influences on their lives. And these influences will come from their extended family, their friends, their education, their economic standing in their community, their folk stories, and so much more. And these influences will participate in how each person shapes their beliefs and their practices. And yet, even with all these influences, belonging to their family and community will be, end up being much more important for most Muslims than the actual content of their beliefs. And so we should get to know them as people. We should listen to the stories they tell, the proverbs they use, their reactions to the events in their lives and in our lives. And these will tell us much more about our friends. And we should try to build bridges between us 
you know, us all, so that when the time comes to talk about bridge differences, the relationship will be strong enough to carry the weight of these differences. And as we do this, we will discover what it is about us and Jesus that they find attractive and meaningful. You know, because we don't know. We're, we're just trying to live out our lives in Christ before them. And as we do that, you know, they'll notice things. And then we will discover what they see. And that's the beauty of ministry. That's the beauty of meaningful relationships. The beauty of watching the Holy Spirit work in us and through us as we do live together with our Muslim friends. Anthony, I think there's uh, just so much to continue thinking about here, not just about um, our own Christianity and how we experience it and how we experience others, but thinking through, like you said, from the evangelical lens, what is Islam? I remember when I was really studying Islam and some of the other world religions, the question of, okay, is this a religion or a culture? And coming to the conclusion that yes, but that question isn't maybe even, that's not relevant to the people of that, of these cultures is, is Islam our religion or our culture? Yes. And so understanding that uh, was really helpful for me to start broadening my understanding and definition of what, uh, of what those people believed. And the diversity that you talk about, I, I also thought about a particular time when we had a Muslim friend that we were out at a restaurant with, and this friend said, oh, I want to get this dish that has shrimp in it. And we said, are you sure that you want to do that? Because we thought you weren't supposed to eat shrimp because that was one of the things in Islam that we had learned you don't eat. And this person said, am I not supposed to eat shrimp? I don't like that wasn't part of their, you know, of their culture that was really important to them. And so the not assuming that I know what, what people believe for me has also been really helpful to have the idea that I can know some of the shape but not the not all the specific details. Oh yeah, talking about the shrimp, it reminds me, I was in the city where I lived, which was very far from the ocean. I mean, people would never have touched shrimp. They would have thought it was haram. But you go down to a city right on the ocean, <laughs> nobody down there thought it was haram. It was just, oh, you know, because it's just things get, get localized ideas become localized and um you know it's it's it gets shaped by the environment you know when we begin to understand this and begin to understand the diversity that even exists among ourselves maybe we'll be able you know to more readily receive the instruction in john 17 about ourselves that what really is important is a person is centered on Jesus Christ, not whether they're, you know, of that denomination or they interpret the Bible that way, but they really are in Christ. <laughs> and because of that, we are brothers and sisters and we are family 
it, it could really even revitalize our own faith walk as we express that to the world. A lot of really great things to think about as we engage with uh, Frontier Peoples. Anthony, thank you for uh, this week's discussion. Great talking to you, Jason. God bless. Thanks for joining us on the Global Hearted Podcast. If you have more questions about how you can find ways to follow Jesus around the globe, or if you have questions you would like to hear Anthony answer, email us at anthony.taylor at globalhearted.com. Or to hear more episodes, go to globalhearted.com. And now receive a good word. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age.